Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today, we are honored to have with us Carol Lano, a distinguished figure in the world of European policy analysis. As the CEO of the Center for European Policy Studies, since 2000, Carol has been at the forefront of shaping and understanding European policy. The institution is renowned as Europe's leading independent think tank and is recognized among the top 10 globally. Carol's expertise spans financial regulation, European economic governance and single market issues. His recent work has explored diverse areas such as EU healthcare policy, anti-money laundering, Russian financial sanctions, cryptocurrency regulation and Europe's geopolitical role. And that fits in nicely with the topic of today's podcast, where we will talk about the digital euro. Karel is also an accomplished author, and his latest book is called The Great Financial Plumbing, From Northern Rock to Banking Unit. It was published in 2015. And he has another publication, co-authored in 2023, A Digital Euro Behind Impulse, Think Twice, Act One which examines the potential impact and the benefits of a digital euro for consumers and merchants in the EU. And there I'm already starting to get into the topic. Welcome, first of all, Carol, to this podcast. Welcome. And before we begin to talk about the nitty-gritty and the advantages, disadvantages of a digital euro and maybe the obstacles that we face on the way to getting there. Could you explain to our listeners very basically what the concept of a digital euro is and how it differs from already existing digital payment methods? Basically, we're speaking about a central bank digital currency, uh, CBDC. In this case, the Euro CBDC. And central banks around the world, because of mostly developments in cryptocurrencies, have explored ways how to respond to this. You could say that until 2018, central banks were very much against. They saw this as a threat and said it would undermine the monetary policy function of a central bank. And the central bank has basically the monopoly to issue cash. But then in 2018, they turned basically 180 degrees because they realized that the appeal for central bank digital currencies or for cryptocurrencies was related to the fact that transfers, certainly internationally, were far too expensive. And that with a CBDC, they could probably respond to this by creating a digital equivalent to what we know as being the legal tender of cash, which of course, transferring internationally is extremely complex and extremely difficult. You can, of course, carry it with you if you carry dollars or euros. But if you want to remit money to, for example, your family abroad, it's almost impossible to do it in a technological way, or you could, of course, send money as well, but uh, has a big risk, let's say, that it gets lost. 
So then central banks realized that just because remittances electronically are so expensive, that they had to do something about this and that eventually they could respond by creating a digital central bank digital currency, meaning a digital form of legal tender. And that's what is basically on the books now, at least in Europe, but also in other countries, but in different forms, is being studied also in the United States, in the UK, in China, in, in Switzerland. So many countries are looking at ways on how to adapt the classic cash as we know it in mints and coins to the digital equivalent. The big difference is that you have digital euros or digital Swiss francs or digital dollars on our iPhones or on other ways by which we can pay or you can have it also in a form of a, a digital wallet. But they are not legal tender. They are a tender which is used, a private tender which is used by banks, by those which uh, get uh, place money in circulation, also by e-money institutions, by other entities, which then distribute it to their users. But of course, to use this, there is a cost. You, most people don't know, but you pay a cost by using a payment system of a bank. Of course, if this is for retail transactions within a certain jurisdictions, the cost will be very limited. But once you need to make remittances or transactions, so between, for example, Europe and the United States, between Europe and Latin America, it will be rapidly very expensive. And that's why central banks thought, why not creating a central bank digital currency, which responds to this, by which I could transmit in digital legal tender euro from Europe to, for example, Morocco to pay my family over there without being charged an awful amount to do this. Now, you mentioned two things. Uh, one is the increasing use of non-cash payments and then also the rise of cryptocurrencies, which seem to be going hand in hand, but they're not necessarily the same. Now, let me put a question to you because what you described doesn't seem to be entirely new. I mean, even before the arrival of, say, PayPal or the arrival of the cryptocurrencies, most people did at least part of their transactions via non-cash methods. So there were checks that you could write in the old days. There are bank transfers that people did to receive their salaries, pay their rents in, in most countries. And you could do all those things internationally. They were very expensive or probably still are very expensive and a bit cumbersome, but that was possible. And no one seemed to bother that much. You said also there's the rise or European or central banks see the rise of cryptocurrency. So is it more of an issue that they suddenly realize that consumers or the market participants should pay less? Or is that maybe even a secondary concern to some things happening that central banks see as threatening their monopoly and their, their grip on monetary policy in the end? It's uh, more the second that they thought, let's say, by seeing the success of crypto, which started somewhere at the end of the first uh, decade in 2000, 2008, 2009, but became very successful, they feared to lose grip on creation of money. And one of the forms of creation of money is M1, let's say the cash in circulation. And if this were all to become private, say they could have less effect on what is this, uh, the role of a central bank, creation of money, cost of credit in a certain financial system. But of course, it's also related to the other element, let's say that if a lot of this money in circulation or say is reduces, declines because of digital euros, dollars, whatever in circulation, 
they could have less a grip of, of, on the system. So they had to respond to this. If this is related, for example, to the fact that international transactions are far too expensive, they have to do something about this. The problem is, however, that we haven't seen clear evidence that overall, because of the existence of digital means of payment, that cash and circulation has declined. What we've seen, and for example, in the case of the euro, is that cash and circulation has increased, even if we have many more digital means of payment. Of course, and then you can realize, is this related to, for example, tax avoidance, tax evasion, money laundering, other things? Or is this related to other developments? We don't know exactly. And also, it is, in addition, different from member state to member states, at least in the EU. Now, from the perspective of a consumer, also obviously from the perspective of companies who do international business, reducing the costs of payment, of course, that's something that sounds wonderful. So let's do this. There doesn't seem to be much doubt about it. But what are the, the cons or what are the warnings that people issue that see those developments more critically? I think certainly the first big problem which I see in the eyes of a simple consumer, he will not know what is the difference between a legal tender digital euro and a non-legal tender digital euro. The digital euro, which we all of us have today, is not a legal tender. What the Commission is now doing is proposing a regulation which makes the digital euro legal tender, which creates a lot of confusion because people will not know if they get kind of digital cash in the future. Is it the official one, the official new issue directly by the ECB, or is it the private one? And certainly, of course, we may understand, because we may understand what is the legal tender, but I think 99% of the public over there uh, will not understand. And they will need to get adapted, because they will have probably on their systems two ways to pay. They can pay with the cash, which is the cash issued by the ECB, the digital cash by the ECB, or there is the digital cash, which is issued by the bank where they have their account. And that's for me the first objection I have. It is extremely confusing what the central banks are doing, uh, which relates to a second objections. Basically, digital means of payment is something which is managed by technology firms today. It is also by technology firms for banks. Say, in many European countries, the payment systems are operated by big, whatever, servers, which work in kind of demand for the banks with the issuance or with the handling of payments, at least digitally. The ECB wants to set up a system on itself to handle its kind of legal tender digital cash. But you wonder, first of all, this is not a competence of the ECB. This is not an expertise of the ECB, which they'll have to build up. Today, it is an expertise, which is an expertise of the market, of many different payment systems, organizations which are competing with each other to give us the best possible system. And we have seen as consumers over the last 10 or 20 years, what an evolution which we've seen not only with the PayPal's, but also with their own banks, with the kind of payment services that they offer. So if the ECB now intervenes and sets up a form of a monopoly or selects a payment system, which will become the payment system for the digital euro, you wonder what will be the effect on this competitive process, which we've seen amongst payment systems in Europe. On top of that, if that will to be a monopoly, what or say a form of monopoly, how will the interaction be with other payment systems which have not been selected? How will the system adapt to innovation in payment systems, which we will continue to see? And if it's not so much in Europe, we'll certainly see it in other jurisdictions. And will our system be sufficiently adapted? And which is then a third problem, which is then related to that, is that 
we will have, according to initial proposal from the ECB, a account with the ECB to make our transactions. And at the moment, the ECB says the limit for this account will be 3,000 euros, which again creates some disconfusion. We'll not only have an account with our bank or with two banks, private banks, but we'll also have an account with the European Central Bank because of the fact that we want to make transactions in digital legal tender euro, which creates even more confusion that people will not know what will I use now, which will I use my ECB account or will I use my private account? But also it will do a thing which the ECB shouldn't do, which is holding accounts for private citizens. Today, banks, commercial banks, and also payment systems, sometimes some other operators, have an account with the European Central Bank, say wholesale accounts, but we don't have retail accounts with the ECB. And on top of that, then the ECB sets an artificial limit of 3,000 euros, which we don't know exactly how it will operate and how it will be clear, for example, at the end of the day, if you do many different payments with this account, what will be your limit and when will it, there be a cutoff point? But also what will be the impact on the private money intermediation by commercial banks of the fact that citizens will be required, will not be required, will be not be an obligation, but will use also from time to time eventually their central bank digital currency for which they have an account with the ECB of 3,000 euros. So you should calculate, say, 400 million inhabitants in the EU or say whatever, a bit less for the eurozone, which have an account with the ECB, which then have each of them about 2,000 euros, what is the impact on the liabilities or the deposits which we have at the commercial banks? Yeah. And what is the impact on the money, say, on the credit provision by commercial banks? Yeah, that's an awful lot of accounts, right? There's probably more accounts than any private bank has, in, certainly in Europe, right? 400 million account holders. Also operationally, that seems to be a, a challenge. So the limit, I guess, is uh, imposed, however high it will be in the end, is because otherwise, why should anyone continue to have a current account at a private bank? Because it's much less risky, of course, to hold it at the ECB, where you don't have any counterparty risks. The ECB can't go bust. Exactly. So why should I go to a commercial bank if I can have a much safer account with the ECB? Which raises another point, if you then have a situation like we got in 2008, uh, 2009, that people will say, oh, problem, I will put all my money with the ECB and the ECB will be put under pressure to increase the limit and all the money will flock to the European Central Bank and the whole private banking system will be dead from one day to the next. And the ECB has not responded to this, but we know that like happened in 2008, if our policymakers at European level meet and they say, oh, there is a huge run on the banks, we will let everybody to put their money with the central bank, they can decide this extremely rapidly and one day to the next. But do they know what is the impact on the private banking system as a result of that? Will they really realize? Some people, of course, say now, let's say, look, it will prevent bank runs, let it go, and we will solve this problem of, what is it, the liquidity transformation by commercial banks. What degree do you think plays a role the, the fact that not just cryptocurrency, which is still for most people and most citizens in, in Europe is a niche issue. Most people may have heard about it, but very few people actually have traded or do hold significant amounts of, of cryptocurrencies. But also 
almost all of the digital payment systems that we use every day, they tend to be non-European. So all the credit card companies, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and so on, PayPal, a major, a major player in the digital payments area, they're all generally US-based institutions. Certainly none of them is in Europe. Does that also play a role? And if you think so, how successful will Europeans be, considering that there have also been other attempts of trying to establish competitors to U.S. technology companies with public money. There was a talk, I think, some years ago that we need some kind of an European search engine to compete with Google. Nothing much has happened. So the track record doesn't seem to be very positive, to put it that way. Indeed. I mean, there's certainly been attempts in this direction in the past. But the first thing is that, of course, it is one of the considerations that we are pay international payment systems wise basically dominated by two or three systems which are not of European parentage. And one of the reasons is that the ECB has argued it will strengthen the international role of the euro, which is another thing which we are say which the ECB is a bit frustrated about that this international role of the euro is not strong enough. However, we know let's say that There are also side effects to this. Let's say one of the reasons why we have cash in circulation is that people want to maintain their anonymity. Of course, we know that these systems like the international payment system, which we have, uh, they also maintain our anonymity. But in critical circumstances, authorities which are supervising these entities could ask for the details about the person's holding accounts of transferring money for, for example, terrorist financing reasons, for money laundering reasons, etc. The ECB says, let's say, confronted with this request, look, is there an effect on anonymity of payments? The ECB, it will be perfectly anonymous. It will be a system which will, will make sure there will be no, it will be encrypted. There will be no way that anybody will see who's making payments. But of course, everybody who knows a bit about digital payments knows that you can always trace who's behind. So... That's one of the additional reasons why this project may be negatively affected. So um, that people, even if we have uh, this, will have this uh, form of money in circulation, that people will prefer to have cash. And you hear it very strongly, certainly in Germany and Austria in the debates. Prefer to have cash rather than any other digital means, even if it's assured that there will be no effect on your identity and that it may be used. But anyway, on your first question, on is it could it become a threat to these or kind of a competition to these other means international means of payments that depends on how successful it will be and the problem is be if it were not to be successful it could be have negative impacts on the ecb as well if people were to say look i don't want to have this i prefer to work with the digital payments means which i have today what is the effect of that then and on the reputation of the European Central Bank? And it's very likely, for example, as I explained, that the payment system will probably not be well selected, that it will be not as performant as the other system which we have, because it will be less subject to payments, that people will then say, oh yeah, I can try it, but I've left it behind, I don't use it anymore. And if the ECB were to only have a few million users after a few years, it would be seen to be a disaster. Which may affect also the reputation of the European Central Bank and its money creation. So in short, if it's extremely successful, that will create a lot of problems. And if it's not successful, it will also create a set of problems. Is that how you can... Indeed, could... and that's, that's why the, the title of our study is Think Twice Before You Do This. Or maybe even 
price, right? So not yeah. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, I think you mentioned uh, the the propensity for cash certainly in in Germany mm -hmm. and a few other countries uh, where people still prefer to do a lot of transactions in cash. And and one of the reasons is um, our trust issues, right? So that uh, people, whether rightly or wrongly, but they think that you know yeah the anonymity is threatened and also the the feeling that uh, the you know the, the the central bank can somehow interfere directly into their businesses and i think having such accounts or the digital euro for example when it comes to imposing interest rates rises or lowerings that would also be much easier i guess right if the ecb could simply decide that there would be a negative interest rate on deposits and uh, they're holding them, uh, they could just implement that probably with a click of a button. Exactly, the and there's no transmission uh, of the monetary policy to the, uh, say, at least to part of the financial system, so it will go much more rapidly. And it will affect uh, demand for money much more rapidly. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. Carol, we have one fixed segment, or we have two fixed segments, but we'll start with one. And one of them in this podcast is what we call a bold prediction, the world in 10 years. And there we ask our guests to take out their crystal bowls and look a little bit into how they believe the world will look like in 10 years from now. So given the topic that we're discussing, it's quite obvious what I will ask you. And the question that I would have to you is, in 10 years from now, will we have a digital euro? And if we do, will it be successful or not? What do you think? I think we will have a digital euro. The central bank is fully behind and it was, will look about ways how to issue it. And I expect if they find their way around these operational problems which we just discussed, it may have some success. But there will certainly, because of the innovation issues which we see and before those, I mean, further developments in IT, IT technology, in uh, the ways we use payments and payment systems, there will certainly contribute to be competition from other systems. So it will probably be seen as useful ways for making some payments, but I think most people will continue to use other forms of payments, private, legal, private tenders to do their transactions. You mentioned at one point as one of the reasons for considering the introduction of a digital euro the fact that the ECB is not satisfied with the role of the euro globally, meaning I assume that they wish the euro had a bigger role than it does yeah. actually play. Now we all know that of course the dollar is still the, um, the world's currency. But there are others that are gaining importance or other countries as well that would love to have their currency play a bigger role, most notably, of course, the Chinese government. And I understand that they're also working on ideas of implementing digital currencies of their own. How far are they with these things? I don't know exactly where, where they are. I hear about it, let's say that they are, they are advanced. But of course, the big difference which we need to know between China and the Western world is that China is a communist system, is a centrally planned economy. It's a top-down system where basically there is no or almost no privacy. So the states can control what you as an individual human being does on a day-to-day -day basis. So you have no, you're basically part of a A small actor in a big system which has no individual, hardly any individual rights. And that is the big difference between what we have. But if you see, for example, on the front page of the Financial Times said that Moody's was eventually going to downgrade 
Chinese debts and the Moody's had issued a warning to its employees in China to say, look, better don't go to the office today because we don't want the search in the office. This shows how much, if you want to have a financial system which operates well, it's based, as you said, on trust, but also on so many different elements which make sure that the trust is there, which is first of all a rule of law system, a system where you have free media, free of expression of your views, so which is all anchored in a legal system which you again have the trust in that it will respond or will satisfy your demands or will respect your private interest and your private individuality, which we don't have in China. Which is one of the reasons why I don't fear too much that China will at any stage very rapidly challenge our financial system rapidly because they will not or will not very rapidly give this full private rule of law system as we have in the Western world and the Chinese world. Because at some stage, like we know in Russia very well today, they will say, oh, we have a big whatever raison d'etat by which we want to take your assets and use them for the state because the state is in a war with another jurisdiction and we need it. Hence, people know this and they will not trust to place a lot of their assets, certainly foreign account holders, with the Chinese state. So for me, it's crucial to see this. Let's say that if people speak about the challenge of the Chinese, which is the biggest, I think, challenge to the certainly the Western world or certainly to the dollar hegemony today, is that we will certainly for the foreseeable future not have the same rule of law system in China as we have certainly in the United States, but also in Europe. You mentioned, of course, another important function of a currency. We talked about payments um, a lot so far, which is an important part. But of course, value storage is another one. So you can you can use currency to hold your wealth. And there, of course, stability and the jurisdiction come to play an important role. That's probably also one of the reasons why a lot of the world's uh, wealth is held, for example, in Switzerland, in addition to Banking privacy, which is also not what it used to be anymore, but still uh, exists. Yeah. So do you think that if the euro, uh, the ECB managed to establish a digital euro successfully, that would also lead to an influx of uh, international money for these purposes that, you know, for example, Chinese citizens would uh, try to hold money with, for example, the ECB in whatever amount that will be then possible in order to exactly avoid the problems that they have maybe in their own country where the possibilities of the state to access resources are far bigger than in Europe? Yes, that's possible, but that's uh, of course, depends on the specific rules which will circumvent that system, whether it will be open to non-residents or only to residents. We'll have to see these things. Of course, if it's open to non-residents, will be immediately the request, where is the money f uh, coming from? I mean, to have money laundering rules to be applied to this. What is, of course, the limit? I mean, this 3,000 euros is a limit which the ECB has advanced. Will it be maintained like this? Can this be used as a way to transfer money which comes from illegal sources to bring it into, legalize it into the European system? So these are many things which will have to be considered. But of course, I think the ECB will mostly be interested to have as, as a way of transacting money. This uh, limit is only something, I would say, secondary. But which, again, raises the issue, 
how will you control where the money is coming from and whether it was coming from a way where the money has been earned in a open legal way. I mean, I think that is a very important consideration. But the ECB says if we have a digital euro, it will be much more easier for us to control whether this is coming from a legal source, for a, from an open, from an officials, officially obtained source of cash, or whether it's not. Because we've seen big money laundering cases in Europe over the last 10 years where money from, for example, Russia, mostly from Russia, was laundered in the European system. If the ECB then has a transaction system for money, this could be controlled much better. Again, this depends on how the system will work, what kind of technology will be used, uh, what kind of requirements will exist around it. And again, uh, as we know, money launderers will see this very rapidly, whether this is a good system or a bad system, or they will continue to use a private system because they are afraid, let's say, that their identity will be revealed. But is that, is that only a matter of technical capabilities or is it at the end of the day also a question of whether you really want to control the sources of illegit money? Because even today, I mean, transactions internationally, they don't happen paper-based or anything. They happen electronically. They happen through systems. There's one, I understand, which is SWIFT, which handles a lot of these transactions. It's an institution that is... I think somehow semi-private, but it's based in Europe, it's based in Belgium. Yeah. So it is subject to the jurisdiction of European authorities at the end of the day. Still, authorities have been extremely reluctant, I understand, to make use of those powers that they would have, for example, to shut down transactions when it comes to, to Russia. So is it a matter of ability, technological ability, or is it also a matter of political will? I think it's, it's both. Don't underestimate the technological problems to, if you and working in a bank, you have millions of transactions on a certain day to implement a system to see where is the money coming from. Of course, thanks to AI and other systems, let's say there's no much more possibility to see this rapidly. There are also similar things as we have in trading, for example, that you slice transactions just to avoid thresholds, to avoid recognition by a certain AI system that you just have systems which are so totally adapted to them. You have one to transmit 100,000 euros, you slice it in 100 times 1,000 euros, and in the meantime, you go below the radar screens and you transact the money. Of course, this all creates additional costs as well, but there's, I mean, we know ingenuity of people which want to avoid certain things or which are criminal, the ingenuity is illimited. So again, that is something which has to be considered. But don't underestimate that in the banking systems in Europe, because of the heavy fines, not only in Europe, but also, by the way, in the United States on money laundering, which there are now, also because of the liability on board members, because of money laundering, there is an increasing fear in banks to be involved in money laundering cases. I think one of the recent very big cases was this Danish case, the Danske Bank, because it only the kind of the, the sentence by the by the state was only revealed fairly recently, which I think uh, led to about a payment of two billion in fines, also to the American authorities, not, to, not only to the Danish authorities. If you see what this implies for a bank and reputational damage and also eventually liability cases against directors, I think most bankers in Europe have become extremely wary. On top of that, Europe is creating an anti-money laundering authority because Europe knows that this is a policy area where they have not been successful. Only about 1% of money laundering cases is recuperated or uh, has been found or has been brought back into the, into the system. We need to be much more successful in tackling money laundering. 
Of course, it also related to Russia, where we were far from enough suspicious in the past what was Russia was doing, undermining our financial system on purpose already in the past. We have been much more aware because of the war in Ukraine what Russia is, what the kind of actor it is. But we shouldn't underestimate the task of trying to bring money which is illegal, which is illegal today, into a legal system. Again, because the ingenuity of people which want to avoid it is, I think, limited. So we see it's no panacea, the digital currency. It has its advantages, but also certainly a lot of dangers or let's put it that way, obstacles on the way. But still, you said that you're confident that in 10 years from now, at least that that was the prediction time frame that I asked you about, we will have some kind of a digital euro. Carol, there is another segment in our podcast and that is what we call Executive Briefing, what you should read now. And there we ask our guests for a few reading recommendations that we can give our guests if they want to dig in deeper into what we have been discussing here. Of course, yeah, executive briefing, as we said, we published a report on this in October, which I think is a very good summary and a very good overview of where the debate stands now. It's entitled a Digital Euro Beyond Impulse, Think Twice, Act Once. Of course, mostly oriented towards the European debate. But there are other things to read. For example, there is an executive order from the White House on digital currencies or a digital dollar. There are certainly publications on what is going on in China, which you can find with the Central Bank of China. Switzerland also has recently announced its intentions to move to not a retail, but a wholesale digital Swiss franc. So you can find the information on the website of the Swiss Central Bank. And there are plenty of publications uh, out there from academics on this issue. I think there was a latest I saw this week, Barry Eichengreen, a well-known US academic, had a piece in the Financial Times. You can certainly trace it very rapidly, where he also expressed his doubts about digital currencies and said, look, uh, this debate will be ongoing for some time because we see there are so many second thoughts or so many angles at the creation of a digital currency by central banks, that uh, this, I mean, this considerations or this kind of thinking will go on certainly for another five to ten years before we will have it resolved. We also know there is a recent report also by the House of Lords in the UK, which also comes out rather skeptical on digital currencies. And the UK has also more the intention, like Switzerland, to move towards a form of a wholesale, eventually, digital pound sterling. That's what I know a bit in a nutshell. But also what is interesting is also to, of course, look at what the Commission's proposal for a regulation to make the digital euro legal tender. Because read this carefully, because it just says that not only the cash, mints and coins and notes are legal tender, but also the digital form of it may become a legal tender if this regulation is adopted by in this case, the European Council and the European Parliament. So that is uh, rather far-reaching what this may, may imply. But also the European Central Bank has its working group on this subject, has already published several papers, and their last report was published early October, their progress report on where they are in their progress towards uh, the Central Bank digital currency, in this case the Euro CBDC. 
Okay, plenty of reading. We'll make sure that we put the links to those uh, things in the show notes so that people can go there and find the exact title. Obviously, we will also mention your paper as an excellent starting point. Carl, we've already come to the end. Uh, thank you very much for this interesting conversation about an important topic. We'll see what happens uh, with the digital euro, whether it comes, whether it doesn't come, and if so, when. It's going to be an exciting journey, I guess. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, Matthias. See you another time. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.